Stand by. Stand by. You have entered a locked orbit with Precinct Omega. Your data has been lodged and recorded. You have one message. Playing message from Precinct Omega. Welcome to another episode of the Precinct Omega podcast. My name is Roby Jenkins. And first of all, apologies for the rather clickbaity title to this episode. Um, I will get to why it is there in due course, but first, the news. So Games Workshop has announced the return of the squats, or to be precise, a new faction in the Warhammer 40,000 setting, the League of Votan. Now, they've been kind of teasing and working towards a return of this diminutive humanoid race to the Warhammer 40,000 setting for quite a while. Uh, first, we saw the Demi-Urg added as a mysterious alien race to the Battlefleet Gothic background. Uh, and following up that, we saw the arrival of special characters in Necromunda, which again were followed by the Ironhead Prospectors in Necromunda. But up until now, it was thought that the Squats as a playable faction in the main Warhammer 40,000 game was simply not going to be a thing. And the answer out of the design studio whenever asked about it has, when they haven't talked about them being eaten by the Tyranids, been a more thoughtful response along the lines of the fact that they couldn't really find a, a thematic place for the Squats within both the setting and the greater mechanical context of the game and they seem to have squared that circles with the League of Votan. Now early criticism against the Leagues of Votan is that they are not grimdark enough. They're a little bit goody-goody, they're a little bit nice, they're a little bit accepting and, and, uh, and participatory and all those things that aren't really in step with the theme of Warhammer 40,000. However, you do have to acknowledge that they are essentially clone slaves of a accidentally sentient family of ancient computers that are going dangerously senile, and that sounds pretty grimdark to me. Anyway, the Warhammer community site is teasing lots of photographs of what they look like, so if you want to see more, get over there and read up on both their background and the forthcoming miniatures range. Not been released yet, I think it's coming in August. Corvus Belly has also recently dropped a bunch of new minis for a variety of factions for Infinity the Game. Now, their miniatures are always top-notch sci-fi aesthetics in whatever the opposite of Grimdark is. Um, bright light, perhaps. Anyway, we will come back to that, but particularly of mention is the new Marut tag. A uh, tag in the setting is a tactical armoured gear or a mech to anybody else. However, in this case the Marut is not a mech, it is essentially a giant robot that is occupied and operated by a synthetic intelligence uh, that kind of avatarizes the mech. Uh, the old design was lovely, it was elegant, it was beautiful, but it is starting to look a little bit dated and the new design is absolutely top-notch. Um, but not without its issues, which we will come to shortly. Cromlech has come back strongly after the sad and premature passing of its founder uh, with a huge range of wild tribe space orcs for those of you who miss your snake bites from Warhammer 40,000. And they of course also have cybernetic boar riders, that is 
The boars are cybernetic, not the riders. Anyway, they would be a great foil to your Leagues of Votan when they drop later this year. Heresy Miniatures not long ago ran a seven-day Kickstarter. Now, if you're listening to this, then sorry, you've missed it, but it's worth having a look at anyway. I got on board early doors because Andy Foster at Heresy basically acquired the rights to a number of out-of-production miniatures that had been re released originally by Antonosity's Workshop and by Statuesque Miniatures, Andrew Ray. Um, and they are absolutely lovely hard sci-fi designs with a range of themes from civilians to spies to soldiers to robots uh, and includes a particularly lovely set of hard science fiction powered armor which i'm really looking forward to getting my hands on and finally anvil industry is getting back into its generic sci-fi stuff cutting away from their proxy minis for 40k that have been really their bread and butter for the last couple of years. They have added an upgrade to their really excellent regiments range of resin miniatures and those are the Republican Grenadiers. These are solid military sci-fi with a distinctive aesthetic and in the usual heroic scaling that Anvil Industries has matched to the Games Workshop range. So obviously you could use them as stand-ins for your Astra Militum, but I think they will shine in pretty much any other sci-fi setting from Five Parsecs from Home to Tomorrow's War to Star Breach, and obviously they would make an outstanding Red Force for Horizon Wars Zero Duck. And so to this episode's main theme, which is why the Jedi are probably war criminals and why I've got to tie this back to this episode's news, despite Atomic Mass annoyingly not dropping anything new for Legion in the immediate past. And let me tell you, that's a pain in the neck. So once upon a time when I was in the army, I was young and stupid. And as a side effect of this, I thought that custom tactical gear was pretty cool. Now, to clarify, customising your tactical gear so it's more comfortable and more efficient is an excellent idea. And if, as a side effect of that, it happens to look cool, all the better. However, customising your gear specifically to look cool is a stupid idea. Now, happily for me, I was an officer in the Army Medical Services and I was self-aware enough to realise that I spend most of my time then in a Land Rover or a command tent, so I never went all out. However, had I, as my platoon commander at Sandhurst recommended, decided to join the infantry, it could have been a bit of a horror show. Anyway, I tell you that so that you understand that when I first saw tactical longblades, I thought they were cool as hell. Having a modernised Roman Gladius or a Wakizashi or even a hatchet on your webbing or backpack sounded like it would be really cool. But in reality, it's the warning sign of an incipient war crime. You see, war weapons, pistols, rifles, machine guns, that kind of thing, are designed with one purpose in mind, which is to kill as swiftly and efficiently as possible. For long-range engagements, we have rifles and machine guns, and for short-range engagements, we have pistols and carbines. The reason why even the relatively inefficient muskets supplanted swords and axes so thoroughly between the 17th and 18th centuries is because they are fundamentally a simple tool. They are the ultimate point-and-click device. 
Meanwhile, learning to use a sword or axe to kill as efficiently as a firearm requires years of practice, training and experience. So if you take to a modern battlefield with such a weapon and you don't intend to use it, then you're carrying useless weight, which no soldier is ever going to do. If, however, you do intend to use it, then you're premeditating the deliberate use of a weapon to kill in a less efficient or effective manner than a firearm, which is pretty much by definition a war crime. You are wielding a weapon that will maim and wound before it will kill, needlessly prolonging the pain of an enemy combatant in what is essentially a form of retributive torture. And on that delightful note, let's get back to this episode's news. The Leagues of Votan are, however grimdark, the closest thing GW has released to a good guy faction in the 40k-verse since the Tau. But they still carry non-firearm weapons. Now, in the 40k setting, I don't think that pointing out that every faction is, by modern standards, a collective of war criminals is really all that controversial. Or indeed, surprising. In fact, one could make a pretty good argument that this is a feature rather than a bug. But when it comes to Infinity, things are a bit different. In Infinity, by 40k standards, we're talking about near-future humans, less than two centuries advanced from where we are now, with a recognisably modern society, with international laws and law enforcement and rules of engagement that are specifically cited in the setting. Flame weapons and electromagnetic weapons are specifically cited as being banned by international law, although Admittedly, they are still used by almost all the factions. But multiple core elements of the major factions, even or perhaps especially named characters who are public figures, wield swords and other traditional melee weapons. And this is the point at which we run, of course, into the rule of cool. Back at the start of this, I talked about how I, as a soldier, had seen tactical melee weapons as being something cool until I understood their implications better. So I totally understand the appeal of your cyber samurai with a submachine gun in one hand and a katana in the other, but I do think that military sci-fi settings have to work that little bit harder to justify why the competition between the weapon and the armour has reached a point in which melee weapons represent anything but retributive torture. By way of contrast, if you look at the releases unlocked by the Heresy Miniatures Kickstarter and the soldiers in Anvil Industries Republican Grenadiers, you'll notice immediately that there is a distinct absence of melee weapons, but also that the miniatures themselves are still pretty cool. Now I initially described Infinity's setting as the opposite of Grimdark, bright light, but when we look a little closer we can see that perhaps despite the high technology and the primary colours, the human sphere is a more flawed and dark place than one might expect at first. This is of course no mistake, the setting has included social injustice and moral ambiguity from its very start, but the inclusion of melee weapons not merely as a symbolic gesture or backup weapon, but brandished as the primary weapon of frontline elements of several factions feels like a misstep. Mechanically, one could overlook this in the first couple of editions, as despite the presence of such weapons, they were pretty ineffective and firearms were almost always the preferable option to overcome the enemy. But within the third edition, and since, a greater emphasis has been made, mechanically, on the effectiveness of close-quarter melee combat. Now, of course, there are aesthetic as well as mechanical reasons for this. That 
I recognise, and they boil back down to where we started, the rule of cool. And I'm not here to say that Corvus Belly should stop doing that, or that you shouldn't field sci-fi minis with swords and axes. As ever, my message is all about being informed and aware of the implications. So the next time you pick up an Obi-Wan Kenobi mini or a Luke Skywalker, you might like to bear in mind that however heroic and selfless you think those characters are, a lightsaber isn't an elegant weapon from a more civilized age, but a sign of the willingness of the Jedi to maim and injure their opponents. Cool comes at a price. Inevitably then, we turn to my own efforts in this regard, and there are a couple of things worth pointing out. The first, that there is a significant dearth of close combat weapons in my game design, and there is a similar absence in my miniatures design. Now, I'm not going to say that this is a permanent feature, never to be changed, but as mentioned, I think that including this kind of thing in a miniatures range, when your objective is hard-ish, sci-fi requires a degree more thought on the part of the designer, and that is on three levels. So the first level is mechanical. In practical terms, I have to wonder how an engagement at close quarters, other than with a pistol or a knife into the throat of an unwitting sentry, is supposed to play out on the tabletop. If you consider that your heroes are going to be equipped with ballistic weapons then, except for Silencing a sentry, they are going to predominantly want to stay within the optimum range for their reliable, deadly firearms. Coming to close quarters needs to be reserved for when it is really the best or only option. This is why in Horizon War Zero Dark it's rare for a hero to go into CQB and emerge unscathed. Although heroes will tend to have the statistical advantage when it comes to winning or losing in such a fight, they will invariably be wounded and frequently killed. And there's little comfort to be had in winning a hand-to-hand -hand combat when you're dead. But I'm open-minded to the idea that there may be a character, faction or mission in the future in which hand-to-hand -hand melee fighting is the optimum choice and that a hero might therefore need to be appropriately equipped. That said, you can be quite sure that if I get to that point, the word hero may well be used in the classical sense rather than the modern one. If you see a precinct to make a sci-fi miniature design with a sword or an axe, you can be pretty sure it's going to be a red flag that this guy's a wrong one. In fact, when I was first conceptualising the Venusians, they had a predilection for melee weapons, which I justified on the basis of their tunnel-based society beneath the surface of Venus, and the idea of a trial by combat in order to ascend to the more comfortable existence of the domed sky cities. The, but, but the more I thought about this, the less sense it made. Long melee weapons are harder to use in tunnels than short-barrelled firearms, and the idea of a trial by combat was at odds with the philosophical direction I was taking Venus at the time. So the melee weapons went away to be replaced with bullpup carbines and pistols, with longer barrelled weapons like the squad support weapon being essentially adapted versions of the carbine. So if you're designing a miniatures war game for an ultra-modern, near-future or science fiction setting and you plan to let your characters wield swords or axes, I would strongly advise you to think about why it is they're inclined to favour them over the safer, more reliable and arguably more humane option of just shooting someone. And if your answer is no better than swords are cool, well, I don't disagree with that sentiment, but I would argue that you need to reconsider 
your design choices. We're nearly at the end of the episode, so naturally that means that I have to mention my Kickstarter again. It's still scheduled to launch on the 1st of August, and I've made a promotional video which my patrons have had a chance to preview and criticise. I've worked out my stretch goals and subscribers to my newsletter are starting to get a preview of what those will look like. Please do sign up to the newsletter. Please also sign up for notification for launch of the campaign. I'm going to be making some bonus videos over the next couple of weeks to tell you more about the project specifically, so watch out for them soon. Now, if you're new to Precinct Omega, last year I commissioned some digital sculpts of miniatures inspired by the narrative in Horizon War Zero Dark, Operation Nemesis, the first supplement to the main rulebook, both of which you can find now on Wargame Vault. I'm running this Kickstarter for two big reasons. The first is to make sure that the sculptor gets paid the balance of his fee, and the second is to test the waters for a miniatures range developed on the basis of the kind of thinking I've articulated in this episode. If it's a success, then this will of course mean adding more minis to the range as well as unlocking new options for Precinct Omega in the future. If it's not a success, then at the very least it will have provided me with some good content and valuable learning that I'll look forward to sharing with you, and don't worry, the sculptor will still get paid. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe, it really does help, and if you liked it enough, please consider supporting the Patreon at patreon.com slash precinctomega. Thank you for listening, and I'll speak to you again next time. Warning. Warning. Docking clamps released. Decoupling complete. Thank you for visiting Precinct Omega Star Pharaoh. Safe journeys. Until next time.